Well, thank you, Pastor. And uh, in light of the events of uh, even this past week, thank you, Dr. Osborne. I am uh, pleased to publicly declare that he passed his Ph.D. Uh, oral examination uh, with flying colors. And so uh, for anybody uh, who thinks that, um, you know, it, it might be too late in me in life to go get my uh, Ph.D. degree, let me encourage you, uh, it's never too late. If Chris Osborne can do it, you can do it, my friend. So... But um, in a more personal way, I want to come this morning and say thank you, Central Baptist Church, for a couple of things. One is because um, at Southwestern Seminary, we could not do what we do apart from partner churches like Central. Not just in terms of what you do uh, every week as you take up your uh, tithes and offerings, a portion that makes its way out of the church through the cooperative program to places like Southwestern Seminary where I hope you know that every student who comes to Southwestern Seminary from your church or from other Texas Baptist and Southern Baptist churches like Central receives an automatic 50% tuition scholarship because of your generosity. It is the greatest deal going in higher education today. And so the first words I always say when I'm preaching in one of our partner churches is thank you for what you do in terms of your giving. But more than that, because Southwestern Seminary, when we are at our best, is the seminary where churches like Central send their God-called men and women to come and to get theological education for lifelong ministry and mission. And I'm delighted that not just over the years have you sent some of your best and your brightest in terms of those who've come through Texas A&M or been members of Central Baptist Church, but now after 34 years, you're sending us your pastor to be part of our faculty. I want to say to you, I know for many of you, obviously, there's a, a time of loss and a, a sense of grief, as it were, in terms of the, for many of you, the only pastor you've ever known is, uh, is leaving. And I hope I can encourage you in this way. Think about the impact one man of God has made in one church for over three decades. Now think about the opportunity he will have in training and raising up those who will pastor thousands of churches because of his teaching and influence at Southwestern Seminary. I want a Southwestern Seminary where we produce an army of Chris Osborns to go out and to plant their lives in churches across the Southern Baptist Convention that we might see a more faithful ministry. Even if he is an Alabama Crimson Tide fan. So, just shows you that love covers a multitude of sins. So, amen. Uh, Philippians chapter 1 is where we're going to be at this morning. Philippians chapter 1. And in our few moments together, I would want to center our uh, hearts and our minds and thoughts and affections around one verse. Um, I, I think sometimes, maybe even unwittingly in our culture today, we have tended to make overly complex and complicated things that are remarkably simple and straightforward. I believe that is especially true when it comes to living the Christian life. And so I'm drawn to a particular passage in one of the greatest um, uh, letters in all the New Testament. 
uh, to the church at Philippi. One verse I'm going to call our attention to this morning. This is Philippians 1, one verse, verse 27. Let me just encourage you to follow along in your hearts as I share this word from God's word uh, this morning. And uh, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, today. The Bible says just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. This is the word of our Lord, and thanks be to God uh, this morning. You know, it seems like in our culture today, we have tended to uh, have to make things that ought to be fairly understandable, simple, and straightforward, remarkably complicated and complex. And I'll give you just one example. When's the last time you, you got that uh, cup of coffee at McDonald's? And you looked at it, and it said on the side, caution, contents, hot. Now, I would think that that would be pretty much self-explanatory, right? But that actually got put on there as a result of litigation, where a customer once got a cup of McDonald's coffee, spilled it, burned themselves, sued McDonald's, got a massive legal judgment, and so from thenceforth and forevermore, every coffee cup at McDonald's has to say, caution, contents, hot. Something that ought to be pretty straightforward, you ought to just kind of know that, that we've now had to spell it out. I, I think about in the world of education, particularly higher education, uh, we've had to get so lawyered up in things to where we now have to stipulate and specify almost everything. If you notice, in any educational context, the, the document they call the student handbook gets a little bit bigger and thicker and more wordy every year because students keep figuring out things they're not supposed to do that we didn't know they weren't supposed to do until somebody actually did it. And then the lawyers come in and say, you need to put language in about that. And I'm telling you, it can be incredibly complex to have to navigate this kind of stuff. Think about the Christian life. In fact, just go online and Google or Amazon search resources for Christian living. And you're going to find a plethora of pleasantly packaged books and workbooks and resources and study guides. They're going to have titles that go something like this. Three steps, five things, seven things, ten things, twelve things. Dr. Osborne, I've even seen 21 things you got to do to live the Christian life. And is it any wonder then that many professing Christians seem to increasingly struggle with maximizing what it means to live the Christian life in the kind of joy and victory and peace that I believe Jesus intends for us to walk in? In fact, candidly, when it comes to living the Christian life, I, I wonder just even by looking at some of our countenances, if we've tried to live as if Christianity is more of a drudgery than a delight and if Christianity is more of a burden than a blessing because we feel like we just can't measure up in terms of everything that we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to do it and we got all these lists and all these things we're supposed to do and man how do we how do you keep up with all that and I wonder if we've succumbed to that same kind of cultural temptation to make something that is remarkably simple and straightforward incredibly complex and difficult to live out. That's why I'm drawn to Philippians chapter 1. Because I think Paul here does something that is remarkably profound. Where he cuts through a whole mess of stuff 
to in a sense bottom line it for us about what it means to live the Christian life. Now if you know the context of uh, this book, the church at Philippi had its genesis there in Acts 16 with the conversion of Lydia, that dealer in purple and fine cloth. She was a slave girl and uh, when she was converted through Paul's witness uh, that upset her masters and they kind of manipulated the political processes to get Paul and his traveling companions thrown into jail. But even in prison, they saw that as part of God's will. So there's this marvelous worship scene there where even the place begins to shake and the jail doors come open. And even that jailer himself and his household are marvelously saved. And a local visible church is born there in Philippi, a church where Paul would spend years in disciple making and leadership development. He would write an inspired letter to them here. And we could go back even in verse 3, for example, of Philippians 1 and just see how much love Paul had for the Philippians. He writes, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you. Now, I know many pastors who thank God for most remembrances of their people. But here Paul says, I thank my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer for your partnership in the gospel. I mean, he, he loved these people. And, and that's shown when you get down to verse 21 when Paul enters into this kind of uh, conversation with himself about for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, and I don't know which one is better. I'd, I'd rather go be with the Lord, but I think I need to be here with you. And so God's going to take care of all that. He'll straighten all that out for us. And then we get to verse 27, where Paul says, just one thing. It's again as if he's saying, let me, let me bottom line it for you. As citizens of heaven, Live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let's just pause there for a moment. As citizens of heaven. Now isn't it interesting that Paul here does not primarily reference his recipients by their geographic or their political identity. He doesn't say as citizens of Philippi or as subjects of the Roman Empire. But he references them by their spiritual identity as citizens of heaven. Now, uh, being president of Southwestern, been on the job a little more than eight months, uh, but I'm the first alumnus to be president of Southwestern in a quarter century, and the first alumnus ever to be married to an alumna as president of Southwestern Seminary. And so I I've been reminded, coming back to Texas after a number of years in a strange and foreign land called Kentucky, that uh, there's something about being in Texas and being a Texan. There, there's a lot of pride in, in being a Texan. I mean, we're so proud. We even put uh, outline carvings of the state in our interstate interchange overpasses, right? Have you noticed that? I mean, we're very proud to be Texans, a, as it were. And there's a sense to that. But, you know, our primary identity, if we're believers, is not as a Texan, nor even as an American. In fact, in churches that still put up the American flag and the Christian flag, the more important one in our purpose is the Christian flag. Our Christian citizenship, our Christian identity, it transcends the political and the cultural and the geographic and every other identity. Our first priority is as a citizen of heaven. And it's in light of that fact that Paul says we should live our lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. A gospel that it's at, at its essence is about taking that which was previously unworthy and making it worthy, right? I mean, think about it. The opening pages of the Word of God, right? Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. 
God creates the first man, Adam, the first woman, Eve, the first dwelling place, the Garden of Eden. And he gives to them one prohibition. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you do that you will surely die. Along comes the snake in the grass, the serpent, that Revelation 12 says is the devil himself. And he deceives that couple into sinning, transgressing, eating of that forbidden fruit. And how does he do that? By saying to them, no, 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 God, God, God's holding back on you. He, he doesn't want you to eat that fruit because he knows if you do that, you'll become like him, knowing. Notice that the original satanic strategy was to cause that first couple to question the word of God and to question the goodness of God. May I submit to you parenthetically, I believe that is the exact same satanic strategy the devil is trying to work in our hearts and minds every day to cause us to question or to denigrate or to doubt the word of God and the goodness of God. But they fall. And when they fall, they take us all down with them. Everything changes from that moment forward. Sin is unleashed in the cosmos and creation to the point of which every one of us is born with an inherited sin nature. And that as soon as we're capable, we're going to commit our own individual acts of sin. Now, that's really not news, is it? I mean, you know, just hang around kids for a moment. Uh, babysit. Or better yet, become a parent. You know, I, I've discovered that becoming a parent will do more to make you a theologian than maybe anything else in life. Because there are certain concepts you understand more vividly, more viscerally as a parent. You know, you understand love a whole lot more meaningfully as a parent. And there, there's, there's nothing like holding a child and, and that, that sense of love that is present. But um, you also understand sin a little more as a parent. Uh, I, I, we have two children. I have a son who will be 10 in January, a daughter who will be 5 in April, and uh, they're the subject of most of my Instagram and Facebook posts because they're just adorable and excelsis. But even as wonderful as my children are, uh, they still have a sin nature. And you know, I've never had to teach my kids how to disobey me. I just, it just came hardwired, you know. I, I've never had to teach my kids how to not do what I want them to do. They, they, they got that from the get-go, right? I've got to teach my kids not how to disobey me, but how to obey me. Not how to do what's wrong, but how to do what's right. Well, here's what the Bible says. You know this, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All their means without exception and without distinction. All means all. And Romans 6.23, For the wages, for the payback of that sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. Thanatos, separation from God. But God, who is rich in mercy, did not leave us or consign us to that fate, but he did what only God can do. He sent his only son to die for us. In fact, Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he, that is God the Father, made him, that is God the Son, who knew no sin, sin for us. You know what that means? That means that on the cross... God treated Jesus as if he had committed every sin that would ever be committed by every person who would ever live, even though Jesus actually committed no sin. In other words, on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had lived my life and your life 
and your life. And your life. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Why? Paul says, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he committed every sin that would ever be committed by every person who would ever live, even though he actually committed no sin. In other words, God treated Jesus as if he had lived my life. Why? Get this. So he could treat me as if I had lived Christ's life. Now, when Dr. Osborne gets up to the seminary with us, he can start using some of these $10 uh, vocabulary words like imputation. Because that's what we're talking about here, right? Imputation means crediting or charging. So on the cross, my sin is imputed, it's charged, it's credited to Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So that his righteousness could be imputed, credited, charged to me. Folks, that's not just good news, that is the greatest news. I mean, think about this. He takes our sin, and not just does he forgive it, but he gives us back in exchange the righteousness of Christ himself. I mean, have you ever, look, have you ever considered the only thing I bring to the table in my salvation is my sin? That's all I have to offer is my sin. The grace, the faith, the mercy, the forgiveness, the salvation, the justification, the union with Christ, the adoption. The, uh, that's all God. All I had to offer him was my brokenness and strife, the old song goes. That's all I bring to the table. That's why salvation is not just a gift, it is the greatest gift. Because all we have to offer him he takes and in exchange gives us everything. So if I can put it this way, we who were previously unworthy, dead in our trespasses and sins, alienated, separated from God, doomed and lost in darkness, we who were previously unworthy, he makes us worthy because of the finished work of Christ. Done for us. Now, let's go back and read Philippians 1.27 in light of that fact. Just one thing, Paul writes. As citizens of heaven, that is, as people who have been made worthy by the gospel of Christ, because that is the only valid citizenship uh, uh, entry into heaven, right? As those who have been made worthy because of the gospel of Christ, as a citizen of heaven, now, Paul says, live your life worthy of that very gospel of Christ. That is to say, our lives should be lived in such a way to where people see the reality of the gospel in and through us. That our lives are continual testimony that the gospel is true and it is real and it is not just for me, it is for you. Wow, that reframes everything, and it especially reframes how so many of us, I'm afraid, have approached the Christian life. Can, can we just be 
blunt for a moment. I know your pastor really is kind of reserved. He doesn't say what he really thinks at times. And so I'm going to try to be a little more blunt maybe than he usually is. You know, years ago, there was this TV personality, Art Linkletter. And he had uh, this uh, saying, uh, kids say the darndest things. Some of y'all remember that. You know, and kids do say some darn things, okay? But can I tell you this? Church people actually say the darndest things. Seriously. And they honestly usually say them to their pastor. You know, as a pastor, I, I often thought, I need to have a sign around my neck on a Sunday morning, say crazy to me today. Because church people will do that. And let me tell you how church people will do it. They'll find their pastor on a Sunday, and they'll come up to him, and they'll say, Now, preacher, you know, I just don't see what's wrong with, and then fill in the blank. Whatever kind of questionable activity, recreational pursuit, beverage, video game, movie, you know, whatever it may want to be that, uh, that, that they want to do, that they know deep down they probably shouldn't do, but they really want to do it because their friends are doing it and it looks fun or cool or interesting, but they feel guilty about this. But, you know, if the pastor will just say it's okay, well then, I mean, it's not just socially acceptable. It'll be spiritually acceptable if the pastor says it's okay, right? And let me tell you the kind of thinking that that actually betrays. It betrays a mindset that living the Christian life is really about seeing just how much hell we can have in our lives and still make it into heaven with one foot on Jesus. And it actually is the opposite of what Jesus taught in places like John 4. Remember John 4, Jesus and the Samaritan woman? Where uh, uh, Jesus and the woman, he says to her, give me a drink. And she says, why are you asking me? You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, you're a man, I'm a woman, we're crossing a lot of barriers here. And Jesus said, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd be asking me for a drink. Because one drink of living water, you will never thirst again. Why is it that so many of us who name the name of Christ live lives claiming verbally that we've taken a drink of the living water, but live lives daily and practically as if we're still searching for some other fountain from which we can find meaning and satisfaction and fulfillment? And by the way, that has massive implications for evangelism, doesn't it? Because instead of people who are not connected to Christ in a saving way, seeing something different in us and wanting to figure out what we've got, they see us trying to chase everything they're chasing and trying to be like them. And so if Jesus really makes a difference, but they don't see it, they don't want it. Do we really believe Jesus is enough? Do we really believe Jesus is better than all the other stuff? Don't you remember the temptation of Satan with Jesus? When Satan takes him up and shows him all the kingdoms of this world and says, bow down and worship me and all this can be yours. And Jesus said, no. No. Why, why, why do so many of us still live as if it's Jesus plus something else. That Jesus is an insufficient Savior. That Jesus is just my punch, my get out of hell free card, but give me a license to live how I want to live. Do we really believe that Jesus is better than everything else? 
Because see, what happens is I realize if the gospel really has gripped me, then I no longer belong to myself. Doesn't Paul put it that way elsewhere? We're no longer our own. We're bought with a price. Therefore, we're to glorify God in our bodies. And it's not about us. It's about the gospel demonstrating its power and its truthfulness in and through us to where people who see us see in living men and women that Christ is real, that the gospel is true. See, the the key to living the Christian life is not Here's my list of all the thou shalt nots, and here's all the things that I don't do, and man, I'm going to get real legalistic and real pietistic, I'm going to check all these things off. It's not about that. Nor is it about the, all the thou shalts, and man, I go to church every time the doors are open, and I do this, and this, and this, and this, and you know, Father, I thank you, I'm not like other men, all these evildoers and tax collectors. No, it's not about that. The key to living the Christian life is not about the thou shalt nots or the thou shalts. It's about the thou. (laughs) Where our hearts and our minds and our attentions and our affections are all centered upon Christ. Because Christ is the one who has saved us and changed us. Christ is the hero of the story of our salvation. And do we really believe that lives that are changed by Christ truly are lives that are different from the inside out. That's what separates Christianity from religion. (laughs) Because we're not trying to do something to earn salvation. In fact, the harder we try to earn it, the more unsuccessful we're going to be. Where the world says do, Christ says done. And so, do we really believe that the gospel is a finished work in us? But it's not finished in terms of being done with us. Because the gospel was never meant to be merely internalized. It was meant to be incarnated in and through us. So just one thing. As citizens of heaven, Paul says live your lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. By the way, he goes on to point out that's how unity happens in the church, right? Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you. Word always gets around. And what will he hear? That you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. The gospel brings unity. You know why? Because the gospel reminds us it's not all about us. What's that old joke wherever two or three Baptists are gathered together, there are at least four or five opinions present? And and we do laugh about that. But that actually is a sad indictment of us. Where too often we care more about getting our way and our opinion and our rights rather than doing what's right. And again, I, I, I hate to be more blunt than your pastor normally is, but let me just lovingly say to you, at the end of the day, God doesn't care about your opinion. He just doesn't. But he didn't care about my opinion either. You know what he cares about? us having his opinion and the only way I ever get to his opinion is to be fully submitted and surrendered to him what really is all about the gospel and the mission of doing everything we can to help everyone encounter Jesus in a life-changing and a saving way our church over doing everything we can to make it as impossible as humanly speaking for anybody to die in the Brazos Valley and to go into a crisis eternity 
That, that, that's who we are. That's the kind of leaders we're committed to training at Southwestern Seminary. Men and women who are committed to the gospel, who are committed to the Great Commission, who are committed to working together to do what none of us can do alone. Because at the end of the day, it is not about us. It's about Christ. It's about the gospel. So just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. So just one question. Are you a citizen of heaven? And if you are, is your life being lived worthy of the gospel of Christ? Let's pray together. Loving Father, we're so thankful for these moments together around your word. Father, thy word is truth. It doesn't just contain truth, it is truth. Truth without any mixture of error. Father, I'm so thankful for these dear people. What a privilege it is to be with them. Lord, I know you have done great and mighty things here. Father, I also know that the best is yet to come. And so, God, I pray for these dear people. I pray you would take this word from you, Lord, and you would sear it deep into our hearts and our minds. And, Spirit of God, that you would provoke us with the question, do I know that I know that I know that I know that I'm a citizen of heaven? Has there been that point in my life where I've turned from my sin in repentance and I've trusted Jesus to be my Savior by faith alone? And, oh, Lord, if I am a citizen of heaven, is my life being lived worthy of the gospel of Christ? Lord, cleanse my hands, purify my heart. Do what only you can do to bring greater glory to yourself. Have your way in this time of invitation and response, O Lord. We pray all of these things by the Spirit, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Gospels presented today, if you have never met Jesus Christ, this is the day to do that. We invite you to do that. We don't care whether or not you join this church. Staff and I are here at the front. We'll share with you exactly how to do that. If you're hearing God's calling you to be a part of this fellowship, if you're hearing you, you need to pray. You haven't been doing what you need to be doing. You've been living for rules instead of a relationship. Then we're going to ask you to come forward, Dave. We will pray with you and send you right back. Anything we can do down here for you, we're here for that. So as the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart this morning, you respond.